This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpets Weekly Review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hi there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And also here in the studio, Josh Taylor. Hello. We start today with the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, just a stunningly positive response from Britain and worldwide to pay her respects and an inspiring service in her honor for this story. We'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, it looks like Monday saw the biggest uh, TV event in history with an estimated 4 billion people around the world uh, tuning in to watch the queen's funeral it's a real testament to the power there i think that that is there with that uh that monarchy with the throne that she was sitting on up to two million people were taking the streets to watch the funeral procession uh i think what kind of blows my mind is the number of people that queued some for more than 24 hours standing in a line uh to to be able to file past her funeral I was really moved just by watching the video of people filing past the Queen's funeral or the Queen lying in state, the Queen's coffin. And you'd have uh, you'd have a lot of older gentlemen who'd served in the armed forces. They'd stand there. They'd give a uh, crisp salute and uh, and walk out or you know, a lady would walk up there, curtsy, turn away with tears in her eyes, walk past. There are people from all walks of life doing this, old, young, all different races and ethnicities, uh, regardless of what the uh, what the left media might say, all you know, making a pretty big sacrifice for for spending 30 seconds or a minute just to say a brief goodbye to uh, to the monarch. It's it, it has really been uh, impressive just how many people that have been touched by by her life or the office, the throne that she sat on, the the institution that she represented. Now, not every one of the four billion people is going to be, you know, as say, emotionally connected to the queen as some of those that were you know, queuing up to see the coffin. But it really does demonstrate the the power and the reach of, of this institution. We had a trumpet brief by our editor in chief on. Monday about this, the Queen's funeral shows the power of the throne, and uh, he made mention of um, some of the points that you just made there, just how moving it was to see this, but he was quoting from Melanie Phillips, who was actually linking the Queen to uh, the antiquity of that throne back to biblical times and, and King David. Which is, of course, something we've done for for a long, long time. I mean, she is exactly right, and she identified several commonalities of of that throne: the way that it's kind of a, a limited monarchy, a monarchy that is not above the rule of law. This is you know, numerous historians have kind of traced even the very concept of the rule of law back to ancient Israel, where you've got the belief that a leader cannot just do whatever he wants, but he's got to submit to the same law as the people, and. So uh, you know, she traced it back to that that model. 
I think one of the things, the points that she made that was just very profound and that, that Mr. Flurry's article just really kind of took even dramatically further is this point about unity, that that David's throne united the warring tribes of Israel, that you have, prior to David, you have a couple of hundred years or so of Israel in this judges period. They're all divided. Uh, you know, they're faced with different threats, but they don't stand together. Many times they're even fighting each other. Um, you, you kind of have a bit of a almost despotic rule in the end by Saul that does kind of start to bring things together. But then David comes along and he unites the kingdom and he unites Israel and he, and, and then Solomon after him, you have Israel at the height of its power, all standing together. And so she kind of pointed the role to the, to the throne as a unifier and uh, the monarchy ruling in that tradition. And then Mr. Gerald Flurry just adds a profound spiritual vision beyond that, that the connection with ancient Israel and with King David isn't kind of a coincidental, oh, they happen to be the same, or Britain happened to develop the same kind of a monarchy that happened in ancient Israel, but that there's a very real and tangible connection between these thrones, that you have the king sitting on David's throne, or the, the, the same throne was, the same royal family are descended from David, that there are these promises to David in the Bible, in 2 Samuel 7 and elsewhere, saying, well, there'll always be a descendant of yours sitting on this throne. And, well, there's not many thrones around today. Just about everybody who was on a throne was at that funeral. Mm. But uh, the royal family is, is descended from David. The queen was sitting on that throne uh, that, that David had. And Mr. Flurry gave the just the incredible spiritual vision behind that, that this is how God unites the world. It's through a throne. You, you, you go to the New Testament, you go to uh, Luke chapter one, and you go to when the angel Gabriel was telling um, you know, Mary she, that the son of God was going to be born. And he starts talking about the throne of David, because that's the throne that Jesus Christ is going to sit on. This is the throne that is going to, to unite the world. And so as you see that throne weaken in Britain, you see division, uh, but there's just a, an incredible practical vision built into that throne. And, and when you see what that throne can do, there was a, uh, let me just pull up the exact quote. There was a, a wonderful quote from Mr. Flurry um, in this article. He says, when you see 4 billion people all watching one throne, you could say that is a prophecy of the way Jesus Christ will unite the world. And that to me is what we really saw at the Queen's funeral on Monday. There was a lot of inspiration there. They were reading words that came right from the Bible uh, and that was really inspiring. A lot of the music was words from the Bible set to music. That was really inspiring. Anytime you put the Bible on display like that, it's going to be inspiring. But what really kind of really kind of impacted me was just seeing the potential there for a throne, that you can have a throne that can impact this many people. And the Bible says Jesus Christ is going to sit on a throne. Well, let's make it practical. What's it going, what is the world going to be like? when 4 billion people are watching Jesus Christ sitting on a throne like that, and they have that same admiration and regard for that throne when you've got Jesus Christ ruling on it. That's a vision of God's government changing the world, of Jesus Christ bringing peace and, and joy to the world. And it's a time, you know, we have a lot of dark news to talk about. There's even people have been threatening to new, use nuclear weapons this week and things like that. But then to have this news story at the start of the week, 
that points to a throne that can change the world. There, there's a lot of inspiration from that. You know, if if this message that Mr. Palmer is talking about uh, resonates with you, I really want to encourage you to uh, subscribe to our magazine, Royal Vision. We just sent our newest edition of this magazine to press yesterday. It is the November-December issue, and the cover story is about uh, Queen Elizabeth II. In fact, we have four articles in this issue that are dedicated to this. Uh, Mr. Fleury's article on the Queen's funeral showing the power of the throne. There's also an article by Brad McDonald, who is the managing editor of thetrumpet.com, uh, and it's called The Throne of David Unites the Universe. And uh, it goes into some detail about just how the the entire British Commonwealth was essentially unified by one thing, and that was the monarchy, this disparate group of people, different languages, races, and cultures uh, around the world united by that monarchy. There's a, an article in here about building passion for the God family empire that draws on lessons from the British Empire. Uh, there's also an article about uh, a speech that uh, Queen Elizabeth gave as a young woman to... Um, those displaced by the Battle of Britain during World War II. Uh, really uh, inspiring issue. And Royal Vision is a, a magazine, a sister publication to The Trumpet that we publish six times a year. It's more focused on Christian living and uh, like day-to-day -day biblical uh, articles, biblical doctrines and things that um, really, if what uh, Mr. Palmer was talking about is of interest to you. There is a lot more where that came from. We will link to uh, uh, your chance to get a Royal Vision subscription absolutely free in the show notes, as well as the article that Mr. Fleury wrote uh, this week about the Queen's funeral. Um, and there is a, a lot more to, to study if you're interested in that message. We thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. Now to uh, more depressing news, I guess. The Ukraine war, as we have said, Russia cannot afford to lose this war. And Vladimir Putin took steps this week to escalate the conflict and bring Ukraine to heel. For this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, Russian President Vladimir Putin gave a major speech on Wednesday. And uh, one big headline from it was that he threatened to use, quote, all means necessary to achieve his, you know, ambitions against Ukraine. And in that context, he even mentioned the possibility of nuclear strikes. And then in this same speech, Putin announced what he's calling a partial mobilization of Russian reserve forces. So that's really an even bigger headline, I think, because it's not just words and threats. This partial mobilization is now happening. There are about 300,000 reservists who are already summoned and most are already in uh, training now or en route. And if you look at sort of the legalese in Putin's new decree, it allows for more mass mobilizations in the months ahead. And there are even already signs of uh, two more mobilizations of this same size. So this could be a, a total of nearly a million men, give or take, that are soon added into this equation and just pushed into this war of aggression. And the order actually marks the first call-up of reservists in Russia since World War II. 
So this is a, it's just a major development. It's something that Putin didn't want to do. It's politically risky, especially since he's always tried to portray this as a small and limited military operation. It's, uh, you know, quite unpopular among Russians. That's why he held off for so long. But we talked on Trumpet Hour over the last couple of weeks just about how, you know, the war has not been going well for Russia. Ukraine has been pushing the Russians out. And so Putin has been feeling cornered and increasingly desperate. It was clear last week that something momentous was going to have to happen if Putin wanted to avoid kind of a full routing and just a total loss of prestige for his armed forces. And now we see that the change Putin has decided to make is throwing just vastly more soldiers at the Ukrainians. And these reserve soldiers are, you know, they're more poorly trained than those battalions who were first sent in. Many of these new call-ups haven't held a weapon in years. Many of them are quite old as well. So there is just kind of a feeling among many of these men that they're going off just as cannon fodder to try to overwhelm a better armed and a better trained enemy with sheer numbers. But, you know, what can they do? So there are hundreds of thousands of soldiers on the way to the front lines now, and this is terrible news for them, but it's also terrible news for Ukraine. It means this war is nowhere near its end, and it shows that Putin is prepared to dramatically escalate it in order to just achieve all of his dark ambitions. What's your sense of the Russian response? We've talked about how there are Russians who feel like Putin hasn't been bold enough in prosecuting this war. There's also been some uh, measure of protest against him as he escalates. How are Russians responding? Yeah, that's a good point. Some of the uh, really hawkish Russians, I think, are happy to see him sort of uh, take this, this new step. But there's also this new exodus of Russians, young Russians um, who are leaving the country. Since just a few hours after Putin's speech, there was, there has been a line of cars dozens of miles long trying to get into Finland. That's apparently one of the only open borders remaining for Russians right now. Um, all of the flights out of Russia are also booked. And then Google Trends, interestingly, shows just this huge spike in searches about how to leave Russia by other means. There's also a huge surge in searches suddenly happening for things like how to break your own arm, you know, things mm -hmm. like that, so that so that many of these these men can evade a call up, avoid being drafted. Um, and then the mobilization order has also triggered waves of protests in parts of the nation. Moscow, St. Petersburg, the largest uh, protests that we've seen in some places since the war erupted. Many of these people are chanting, send Putin to the trenches, things like that. Um, but I kind of look upon those with some mixed emotions and mostly with cynicism, because where were those Russian protesters when the news was published about all the rapes and torture and murder in Bucha. Where were they when news broke about Russia bombing a shelter full of women and children in Mariupol? These people stayed home for that. But now that Putin is saying their sons and their fathers and other men will be sent to fight, now they come out to the street and protest. So, I mean, I do appreciate any sort of resistance against this, this brutal war. But this to me is just so kind of self-serving that it's hard to see it as some sort of a noble stand for justice. We published an article on thetrumpet.com yesterday about Russia staging referendums to absorb portions of Ukraine. Maybe you can explain what's happening simultaneously to 
uh, this mobilization. Sure, yeah, I think it is very significant that this mobilization order came just one day after Russian officials and their collaborators in eastern Ukraine announced that they'll be staging sham referendums to what will ostensibly make some Ukrainian regions an official part of Russia. So these fake referendums are supposed to bring Luhansk, Donetsk, Kyrgyzstan, and Zaporizhia into Russia. And they actually start today, and they'll uh, wrap up on Tuesday. So there's no question that the vote, if you want to even call it that, will will say that the people are in favor of becoming part of Russia. We've seen these kinds of things before, very recently in Crimea. And it's always rigged and ridiculous. It's, you know, pageantry, utterly shambolic. But it gives Russia an ability to say, oh, Ukraine, you're now attacking Luhansk. Well, guess what? That's Russian territory. Because of these referendums, that is an attack on Russia itself. And therefore, it'll be met with our most lethal weaponry. So, you know, it is entirely baseless. But it gives Putin an opportunity to take off any gloves that remain on his hands. And, and it gives Russia a chance to, you know, play victim. That's really kind of the national pastime in Russia. America has baseball and Russia has victimhood. So, so it will resonate with Putin's domestic audience. But the main takeaway there, I think, is, is just that these sham referendums mean that any military action taken by Ukraine in those regions could soon be labeled by Russia as an attack on Russia itself, and met with some of Russia's most dangerous weapons, likely even including weapons of mass destruction. Well, yeah, that that's actually something that uh, Putin specifically mentioned, or he, he put on the table the possibility that they would use nuclear weapons. Right, yes, in, in that speech, he, he, uh, he did threaten the use of nuclear weapons. So it sounds like in his mind, those are on the table. So uh, maybe you can just put this in... Uh, prophetic context for us. Sure, yeah. Uh, Trump editor-in-chief Daryl Flurry wrote about Russia's dramatic escalation of the war on Ukraine just uh, the day after it happened back in February. And he pointed out that this is a topic that he has been specifically warning about for more than 20 years. One section of his article says, I've been warning for more than two decades that Vladimir Putin would be responsible for violent conquests and that he would set in motion some astonishing and historic events. This understanding comes from studying the Bible and believing God. And he has much to say about Russia and Vladimir Putin. And then uh, from there, Mr. Fleury examines Ezekiel 38, and he talks about how this chapter in verse 2 specifically is referring specifically to one individual. And Mr. Fleury said that he's certain that this is Vladimir Putin. In the correct rendering for this passage, such as the one that you find in the New King, King James Version or Young's Literal, it talks about the Prince of Russia being a, a very important and powerful in-time figure. And Mr. Flurry writes, This Prince is Vladimir Putin, and I've explained why for years. The alarming scenes coming out of Ukraine emphasize this view. Bible prophecy is being fulfilled this very moment in Ukraine. So there's a lot in that article and uh, uh, quite a lot to unpack there. Um, but I would recommend that any listener who's, who's you know, worried about this escalating war and wants to understand it in the big picture context, I would recommend checking that article out. All right. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Jacques. At the United Nations yesterday, Israel's prime minister gave his first ever general assembly address. How did he do for this? We'll turn to Joshua Taylor. 
So yeah, Yair Lapid gave his first ever uh, UN General Assembly address on Thursday, and it was interesting in terms of the reactions that came from the media. If you look at a lot of uh, Jewish media, especially right, more right-wing media and stuff like that, you'll see that he was roundly condemned uh, for his speech. Uh, they really hammered him for it, and we'll go over why in a second. But um, I read through the speech myself, and uh, I surprisingly thought he did very well and that in many ways he was treated unfairly with, uh, for that speech. Now, the two main uh, topics that he covered in his speech was Iran, which is no surprise there, but what made the headlines and really earned him the condemnation he got was his comments towards uh, the Palestinians, a two-state solution. Now, uh, he said that, uh, quoting him, an agreement with the Palestinians based on two states for two peoples is the right thing for Israel's security, for Israel's economy, and for the future of our children. We have only one condition, that a future Palestinian state will be a peaceful one. So for that comment for really looking to endorse and to bring back onto the table a two-state solution that's what really got people like netanyahu even members of his own party like uh, in his own cabinet his interior minister slammed him for this uh for bringing the two-state solution onto the floor most of the media thought he should have just not even talked about it not even touched it just kind of left it go and that's kind of been what Netanyahu's done in the past. Um, in 2016, he gave a UN uh, address where he endorsed the two-state solution. But after that, after that 2016 endorsement, he kind of let it go. And he's kind of given, been given credit for taking that two-state solution out of public conversation, for the most part, mm. off the table. But it's never been... It's always been there in the background. So that's why he was condemned. But if you look just for just basically that small bit of a statement, but if you look at the rest of that speech, he's really got a very realistic view towards the Palestinians and towards Iran. And he specifically, he brings up Gaza as an example. He says, look at Gaza. Israel did everything the world asked of us, including from this very stage. We left 17 years ago. We dismantled the settlements, took apart our military bases. There's not a single Israeli soldier in Gaza. We even left them 3,000 greenhouses so they could start to build an economy for themselves. What did they do in response? In less than a year, Hamas, a murderous terror organization, came to power. Mm -hmm. So you see that he he understands very, and you go through the rest of his, his speech. I would recommend our readers do that if they get the chance. It's actually well worth reading, in my opinion. But he goes through and highlights that for a Palestinian state to work, the Palestinians would have to be peaceful. Like that's, as he says, the a future Palestinian state will be will have to be peaceful. And he even talks about them having, you know, you can't be firing rockets at us, all that kind of stuff. You have to leave us and our children alone. And it was he gets a lot right, but he's still coming at it from the understanding that we kind of he still wants a two state solution. Now, when it comes to Iran, What's in, he, again, gets a lot right. He correctly identifies in a very uh, fluent way, affluent way that Iran hates everybody. Iran is really a regime of hatred. He said, conducting this orchestra of hate is Iran. They hate their own people. They hate the Jews, women, gays, uh, the West. They hate and kill mu Muslims who think differently. Their hate is a way of life. And he even shows how he says directly, if the Iranian regime gets a nuclear weapon, they will use it. And what's again, this might be him. He, You have to keep in mind that your Lapid is on the left in terms of his political leanings. He's very much a liberal. 
But he still, even in Israel, the liberals tend to have a little bit more of a backbone in terms of military might than Mm. you would see in the United States. And he even said that the only way to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon is to put a credible military threat on the table and then and only then to negotiate longer and sorry, a longer and stronger deal with them. It is interesting to hear this man talking. We, we know that uh, we're, we're just a short while away from uh, elections in Israel. Uh, the Israelis are, are trying to, they're getting ready to uh, determine future approach to both of these topics. How do, they, how do they deal with Iran that is on the cusp of nuclear capability? Uh, how do they resolve the, the Palestinian conflict? Benjamin Netanyahu has taken very much a uh, uh, we're, we're willing to just maintain the status quo kind of a position. You have a, a politician here who seems to be at least open to the possibility of of maybe taking more risks for a two state solution. How do you see this playing out? For the most part, within Israel, the sentiment is actually pretty heavily against a two state solution. Um, his own interior minister even made that comment that. She doesn't know why she he was talking about a two-state solution just because she knows that within Israel, the political winds are kind of changing against a two-state solution. But in, when you look at Bible prophecy, in Hosea 5, it talks about Israel having a wound, a deadly wound. And Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flory has talked about how that deadly wound is the land for peace process that we've seen play out with like the Oslo Accords and a few other ones since then. And it's never given them peace even he talks about how gaza you you know they pulled out they mm-hmm. gave them gaza and it's created more war it's a deadly wo- it's a wound that you know keeps flaring up constantly so we definitely expect this kind of a trend to continue so whoever gets into power whether it's netanyahu or whether it's your lapid going forward you can definitely still look to see this kind of two-state solution kicking around it's never going to go away and it's probably toward the end uh, as we get towards uh, the return of Christ, it's going to get even worse. And we're going to see this deadly wound probably fester even more. Hmm. Well, we do have uh, Gerald Flurry's booklet, Jerusalem in Prophecy, that gives the overview of what to expect. Uh, prophecy gives a pretty detailed picture of how things will play out in the time ahead. In the meanwhile, we will watch that uh, political um situation play out in Israel, those elections this coming fall. We thank you for bringing that to us, Mr. Taylor. Fascinating story playing out over this past week in America as Republican governors have been exposing the utter insincerity of Democrats' support for illegal immigrants. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the migrant crisis in America is getting worse and worse. I think the latest statistics I've seen have shown that there have been uh, over 5 million people apprehended trying to enter the country illegally since Biden was inaugurated. That's basically like the entire population of Ireland trying to move here. And the, uh, the reports coming out of the border towns are just horrific. I mean, people getting their family dog shot because it barked at someone trying to sneak across the fence at night, houses being broken into, just multiple thousands of, uh, of people uh, committing crimes and moving through these towns all scattered through Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and California. But finally, uh, this past week, uh, some of the uh, wealthy liberals voting for these open border policies got just a tiny, tiny, tiny taste 
uh, of what it's like to live in one of these border towns. When uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he, uh, he coordinated with the state government in Texas to take uh, 50 Venezuelans from who'd crossed through Central America, uh, through Mexico, into Texas. They were living in the San Antonio area. Uh, and then took them and flew them to Martha's Vineyard uh, near uh, near Cape Cod, Massachusetts. That's uh, I guess for our for our foreign listeners, that's uh, w- one of the wealthiest uh, summer retreats in America. Barack Obama has a twelve million dollar home there. Uh, a lot of other uh, wealthy congressmen have homes there. It's about I think the the area is about ninety percent white, eighty percent liberal. And uh, and very rich. The average the average price of a home there is a million dollars, and so uh, definitely the the nicest place these uh, these fifty Venezuelans uh, have yet to visit on their their long trek from Venezuela to the United States. <laughs> and uh, you'd kind of expect all these people who've been criticizing the the Texans and for their their just like heartless conservative. Uh, Principles that they don't want—they don't want to let people just come here illegally. You think this would be a good chance to try to put those people to shame by showing how warm and how welcoming they were to these 50 Venezuelans, uh, and instead they were put on a bus and deported within 48 hours. I think it was 44 hours to uh, to a nearby military base, which wasn't any nicer than the ones they were at uh, down in in Texas. Uh, proving that, like said, like said, when it when it actually affects them, they had the the exact same response as the border towns do. Uh, but they uh, went further went further than this. I mean, you had like Hillary Clinton on the news accusing Ron DeSantis of human trafficking. Uh, yeah, he's just been being attacked from all angles for that. He, he dare bus an immigrant into uh, into an interior town uh, like the Biden administration's been doing since it took mm-hmm. since it took office and uh, someone at the National Review this was actually I think uh, kind of a brilliant political move but they 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 did the math and it's accurate that they said uh when the the residents of Martha's Vineyard are talking about this humanitarian crisis uh that occurred when 50 people just showed up that they weren't expecting uh but then saying that like for the for the so-called humanitarian crisis to be Martha's Vineyard to be proportionally as bad as the crisis in Del Rio, Texas, DeSantis would have had to have sent twenty-four thousand wow immigrants. Ah, yeah, yeah. There's like said so if twenty-four thousand people like showed up just out of nowhere, now you know what it's like to live in Del Rio. That's it's amazing. Like, it's like I gave you a fraction of a percentage of that, and you've got wall-to-wall news coverage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Stephen Fleury has been talking about this quite a lot on the uh, Trumpet Daily this week, and it, it is really a brilliant political move in order to bring this issue front and center. It's remarkable just how uh, completely ballistic the left has gone and the accusations that they're making. Uh, they they want to bring criminal charges against uh, Ron DeSantis for human trafficking, for sending these uh, these migrants up there. Uh, after all that they've been doing, after all that they have said, the exposure of just how how uh, completely shallow their 
quote unquote support for these migrants is is just uh, absolutely stunning. Yeah, because Mr. Stephen Fleury, he had his trumpet brief on that this week. And uh, towards the end of that, he, he quotes the verse in Isaiah 10 that talks about a time when America is going to be uh, invaded by um, Assyrian immigrants or German immigrants and, and not and not just the, the Mexican ones. But the interesting thing about that verse in Isaiah 10 is like the primary sin God calls America out for is hypocrisy. He says, I, I use Assyria as the rod of my anger. I rise them up against a hypocritical mm. nation. So there's a lot of different sins going on in America right now. But that, that, that particular verse about why he's sending the Assyrians, hypocrisy seems to be right there front and center. Uh, and so th something like this just shows that um, <laughs> I, I think it's really highlighted like the hypocrisy, especially in the radical left, like few things have in that like, there was even a petition to to Barack Obama personally saying that like, well, you have a $12 million house right. with seven bedrooms and eight bathrooms. It's like you could put all 50 of those immigrants in there. They'd only have about 140 square feet per immigrant, but that's still a lot bigger than the cages you built for them down in, uh, down in Mexico mm. or down on, the, down on the Mexican border. So it's like, couldn't you like personally take care of these people and, and like like you know like lead by like show show the American people what like a kind true hospitality true hospitality is <laughs> yeah. and I guess he's he Not, wasn't interested showing that it's it's definitely uh, all the the big talk uh, about um, <laughs> how inhumanitarian uh, things are on the border is just virtue signaling. Right. Uh, like as soon as they actually have to do to do anything <laughs> uh, to do that, they're like, oh, well, we need to like deport them uh, because we don't have the we don't have the resources. Like you can see you've got like a lot more money and resources than Del Rio has. And you're 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 fine lecturing them on how they how they should uh, let anyone from Central America who uh, has any financial or political problems live there. Mm. Well, I would encourage you to read this article by Stephen Flurry that went up on the website this week. It went out in a trumpet brief uh, earlier this week. Rich white liberals deport poor brown immigrants from Martha's Vineyard. Uh, and that gets into some of the prophetic implications of this immigration crisis. Uh, go check that out. We'll link to it in the show notes. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, Europe confronts its energy crisis, deadly protests in Iran, China facing serious economic problems, and the Federal Reserve raising interest rates and the dramatic ripple effects this could have throughout America's economy. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the Week in Review. Yesterday was the first day of fall. We're entering into colder months of the year. This could have serious effects, particularly in Europe, which is dealing with skyrocketing energy costs and shortages. European leaders are taking steps to address this problem before it gets worse. For this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, this is where... You know, we heard some of the setbacks uh, that Russia is having in their invasion of Ukraine from Jeremiah in the first half. This is kind of where Russia is doing quite well. This is where they're scoring quite a few hits in this economic 
war. And this week we had from a few different uh, countries their response to this um, energy energy warfare. And the most direct and robust that we had this this year or this week came from the United Kingdom. Uh, and their response to the sky high energy prices, the government laid out its new budget today. They announced plans for for dealing with the the energy crisis for businesses earlier in the week. And their um, their solution is just to throw a heap of money at it. And so it looks like this is you know that it's it's a solution in quotes i mean it's going to it seems like it's going to get britain through the winter without catastrophic energy bills probably with some painful moments for businesses but without mass bankruptcies uh, and that kind of thing the big question is at what cost and the answer to that is nobody knows the british government has responded by writing a blank check so for both businesses and for consumers there's a maximum price for energy and if it goes above that the government will pay the difference between the maximum price and the market rate. How far above that is it going to go? We don't know. How far? How long is this scheme going to last? We don't know. It's uh, They've kind of said that it's going to go for at least six months. What happens after that? Well, what's going to have, what that's going to depend on what happens to energy prices after that. To me, this whole trend, I mean, this is this is the same thing. This was Britain's response to COVID as well. Uh, throw a heap of money at it. Yeah. The government is saying 60 billion pounds. Uh, others are saying when you look at what's likely to happen to energy costs, it could be a quarter of a trillion pounds. Uh, but um, well, the Sky News called it one of the biggest economic interventions in modern times. So uh, and, and the, the amount of money that it could cost an astounding sum. So yeah, we're going to get we're going to get through winter for Britain in, in Britain, I think. But wow, are we storing up for ourselves some massive debt problems? And we've done that through COVID, and uh, it's going to be financed by some pretty some pretty massive borrowing. So, uh, Mr. Palmer, we have been trying to to gauge what to expect from this new administration in Britain. Uh, and I know that there has been some uh, cautious optimism that this is a more genuinely conservative uh, administration than what we had under Boris Johnson. Uh, is what we're seeing here giving us some clues as, as to the answer to that question? Maybe. I think in their budget that they set out today, uh, they did some pretty conservative things, especially after that. I've seen people all week talking about how this is the most radical government Britain has had in years since Margaret Thatcher. And I think by radical, they mean you know actually conservative. Right. Uh, after I saw people saying, well, after 13 years of a quote unquote conservative government, we have actual conservatives. So you know, they, they're one of the things they did, for example, is lower the top rate of tax from 45 percent back down to 40 percent. Hmm. Uh, that gives you kind of a flavor of some of what they're doing, cutting the reversing an increase in national insurance, reverse uh, bringing forward tax cuts. I think there is some parallels with the kind of Donald Trump economic policy with his push towards tax cuts and uh, deregulation. They've got rid of a whole lot of onerous regulation that's been causing a lot of trouble for self-employed people. Uh, one of my favorites, I guess, just because it affects me is uh, they've, uh, pushing forwards plans to have parts of the country where they get lower tax, a lower tax rate in exchange for which they've got to agree to build much more houses and have lower, um, 
you know, lower planning regulations. And I think the housing crisis for people my age is probably the biggest thing that directly affects them. Mm. Uh, so there's a, there, there are a, there is a lot there that I think is similar to Donald Trump. And I think even the borrowing, you know, Donald Trump was very open that he didn't care about debt and that he was going to borrow vast amounts. And he borrowed huge amounts for a time period where there is no, is no crisis. So maybe we are having on the way to a, a British government that is kind of similar to Donald Trump in that it brings, it helps stabilize things. Uh, it helps bring some short-term prosperity without fixing a lot of the big underlying issues, you know, addressing some of them, addressing some of the most destructive things that the radical left are doing, but at the same time, still leaving a massive debt uh, and not bringing, say, a permanent salvation to the country, because that requires something much more than lower tax rates. Mm -hmm. Well, let's step back and look at the broader picture. You, you've talked quite a bit about Britain. Uh, how else are the European capitals responding and as they look ahead to the prospect of this energy crisis growing even worse? Yeah, I'd like to point people, I think, for this, especially to uh, Wednesday's Trumpet Hour. I think it was Wednesday's when, uh, sorry, Trumpet Daily Show, where Mr. Stephen Flurry had a much longer discussion on Europe's response than we're going to have time for here. But in a lot of ways, that's more muddled because you've got this split of response between the European level government and the national government. And the European level government is having a very hard time agreeing anything with the national governments. Uh, and there's been a lot of division. One of the big things this week is the EU is using this as a power grab. So they want to have more power for the European Commission to take control of supply chains in times of crisis. This could be a pretty big deal if they can come in and declare we're in a supply chain crisis. So now we are running Siemens and Bayer and all of these companies, you now report to the European Commission. Uh, so that could be very significant. But you're also seeing a whole lot of pessimism. We posted in our headline section on our article just today, on our website just today, an article from Spiegel where they were talking about Germany's response or lack thereof and saying that ordinary middle class voters in Germany are really suffering and really struggling. And nothing that the German government has done so far, at least this article was arguing, seems to really have helped them. But what I thought it was, did very well was say, well, there are big political consequences from Germany's middle class being unhappy. Germany can survive a crisis that leaves the poorest 20% unhappy, but there are profound consequences from the middle class feeling that their wealth is being eroded and feeling that, uh, that they're being left out of the economic system. And this is where you start. And it pointed to the rise of political extremism, pointed to individuals saying you're going to see riots, the likes of which you have never seen in modern Germany. Uh, and the point they pointed to serious political unrest coming over the winter. And I think that's really one of the, the big things to look for now coming um, coming out of this, that Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry, before him Herbert W. Armstrong, really focused on this, this uh, forecast that you would have economic downturn in Europe push massive political change that would lead to these 10 nations unite, that would lead to the rise of a strong leader. And it's not just Germany. You look at Italy, Italy can't follow Britain's solution. Italy can't turn on a fire hose of freshly printed money and new debt to try and solve the gas crisis. They have been doing, doing what they can so far through borrowing money. They're almost out of all the money that they can borrow. So for some of those places, you're facing a more immediate crisis and one that they would have a much harder time kicking down the road. So we, 
we need to watch the political consequences from this this economic war and uh, they could rapidly hasten the fulfillment of, of biblical prophecy within Europe and the rise of a united Europe and the rise of a strong leader within Germany. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. We do have uh, an article up on the website from this week by Josue Michels. Ukraine needs to beware the coming winter, uh, which focuses specifically on uh, on the effect on Ukrainians. Uh, that article points to one by our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry. Ukraine is hastening a new Germany that uh, Mr. Palmer mentioned there. We'll link to that as well. Go check that out for, for more of the prophetic context of what's happening there. Protests have erupted in Iran. They have some observers saying this could threaten the survival of the Iranian regime. To learn about what's happening here, we'll go back to Joshua Taylor. So protests erupted in Iran starting on Friday over the death of a young Iranian woman who was arrested by Iran's morality police. These are this. It's exactly what it sounds like. They have their uh, religious code, and if any violation, you can be arrested by uh, by this morality police. And they do typically tend to target women, uh, specifically for how they wear their hijab or their headscarf. And that's exactly what this young woman was arrested for: was not wearing her hijab correctly. Now, what happens next is is the key part. Witnesses and her family say she was dragged into their vehicle and taken away, and was beaten to death basically in while this uh, while she was being arrested uh or at this case when she was taken to hospital she was in a coma and was pronounced brain dead mm. so the morality police obviously are denying this they're claiming that she just collapsed due to some heart attack or heart condition while she was being detained by the time they were able to get her to the hospital it was too late but uh, just going off of the bruising on her legs and uh, just the, the condition she came into the hospital, it's pretty obvious what happened. So in response, Iran has erupted in protests. Women are burning their hijabs. They're shouting death to the dictator, death to Khomeini. They are really putting up a fight. And if you watch any of the videos, it's pretty, it's pretty violent. Uh, nine people so far have died. Three of those have uh, been security force members. The rest have been protesters. And the government's response has been pretty clear. They're cutting, they've cut down, uh, shut off internet access. The RGC is calling for the judiciary to prosecute. They've arrested 280 people. They've got pro-government uh, counter-protests planned for today. And the army even said today that it was going to be stepping in. So just to put this into perspective, though, uh, just a great example, as you were said, a lot of commentators think that this might be the end of the regime. But as, and Melanie Phillips kind of is really hopeful about this, she says that whether or not this revolt peters out, she believes in many ways that this might be an inflection point for Iran. But she says something very important that I want to highlight, which is, um, but if the oppressed and the suffering Iranian people have decided that the regime is on its last legs and that powerful forces elsewhere in the world now have their back, this might just be the inflection point for which so many of us have hoped for so long. Mm -hmm. The key point there, she says, and that powerful forces elsewhere in the world have their back. Right Now, if you think back to uh, the Green Movement, uh, back when Obama was in office, that had a real chance to overthrow the, the Iranian government. It didn't. Mm -hmm. and, the re and the big reason why is because Barack Obama kept silent. He didn't help them out. He didn't even give them a word of support. And so Iran was able to brutally put that revolt down. Even in 2019, more recently, they had, their, they had the deadliest uh, uh, protests ever in which over 1,500 people were killed. So, of course, we are, this protest is nowhere near that level yet. Only, as far as I could tell from today, 
Only nine people so far have been killed. Iran is an old hand at dealing with these kind of protests. They're very well practiced with it. They tend to kind of let these protests go on for a bit so that the Iranian people can blow off a little bit of steam. But then they come and crack down hard, which is what we're already seeing with the military saying they're going to step in today. Mm. So um, so from a prophetic angle, we really don't expect this to overturn Iran. Iran's regime is going to stay proud and strong because Daniel 11 verse 40 talks about the king of the south. And that is radical Islam led by Iran, as our uh, as trumpet editor Gerald Flurry has talked about so many times. Mm-hmm. So we don't expect this to cause Iran any real long term problems. Yeah, really, you view this uh, in light of the the kind of support that Iran is receiving from great powers like China, from Russia, uh, and they seem to be more interested in welcoming Iran into the community of nations, trying to kind of strip away that that uh, pariah status that Iran has had. Uh, and even permitting them to uh, complete their nuclear ambitions, uh, it's hard to see them reversing course, uh, particularly authoritarian regimes such as those Asian nations, uh, in light of some protests. Those countries themselves are quite comfortable with putting down similar protests within their own nations. Uh, so, yeah, for, for uh, the nations to, that would actually be required to step up and turn this around, uh, it's hard to see that happening when you see the kinds of uh, governments that are in power in the United States and some European capitals uh, actually taking action on this. We appreciate that very much, Mr. Taylor. We will link to our booklet, The King of the South, that describes Iran's place in biblical prophecy in the end time. Over now to China. We focus on China's growing economic clout and military might. We don't focus as much on some of the financial problems China is facing back home, but these are significant. To bring us up to speed, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yeah, China's actually facing just a whole range of serious problems right now. Uh, one of the most notable is its housing market. Housing is just huge in China. The real estate sector contributes about 30% of the nation's GDP. So just an astonishingly large share. You can compare that to uh, about 15 or 16% in the United States for context. But it turns out that a great deal of China's massive housing sector was being run just like a giant Ponzi scheme. Property developers were relying on escrow funds from pre-sales to pay for new developments. Um, and that's the way it was going for you know, well over a decade, but then many of those sales started facing delays or mortgage boycotts. And so across huge swaths of the country, developers began running out of cash and they could no longer pay workers or buy materials. So projects have stalled. Developers have actually delivered only about 60% of homes that they've sold. So this is what led to the big Evergrande default last year. And it's only been cascading since then. This year, the crisis has demolished several major steel producers, as well as some government-controlled asset managers and several of China's banks as well. So many Chinese citizens are losing their life savings to these government-run Ponzi schemes. And the damage that has resulted so far, really, it could be just the start. So the the collapsing housing market is catastrophic. And then there's something else going on in China that people have basically stopped talking about. The media in the U.S. and the rest of the West, 
they say very little about this anymore, and that is China's zero COVID policy. It's dropped out of the news cycle because the rest of the world no longer cares about COVID. People are, you know, they're moving on with their lives. But in China, COVID is still being treated like the apocalypse, World War III, the fall of humanity. Right now, there are 127 million people under lockdown. Right now, September 2022. So this means about 35% of China's GDP has been effectively shut off. Unemployment is through the roof. Just in the biggest cities, there are 21 million unemployed young people now. And that doesn't even account for the unemployed um, in rural China, where it's even worse. But basically, you've got everyone in the country that has to have this zero COVID app on their phone, which gives you a QR code. And that code tells you where you can and can't go. And your every movement is meticulously monitored. So you've got 1.4 billion people that have been essentially turned into a data point that can be manipulated and rigidly controlled. And it's just causing all kinds of suffering and unrest. That is uh, quite extraordinary. We definitely uh, don't hear a whole lot about this. It's all kind of pro-China. China's on the march. China is expanding its influence and its its power uh, to, to be suffering these kinds of issues back home. Uh, how do you view this prophetically? Well, uh, yeah, that's a great question. And, and what we have to keep in mind is that the partnership that Xi Jinping's China has built with Vladimir Putin's Russia, really that stands out as one of this century's defining geopolitical developments. And because of China's colossal economic power and its much larger population, its political and military power, because of all that, most analysts see China as the lead player in that partnership, and they see Russia as the junior partner. Um, And that view has actually only become more prevalent since Russia's war in Ukraine has, you know, it's faltered, it has isolated and weakened Russia, it has really tarnished Putin's reputation. So people increasingly say that Russia is the junior partner in that tandem. But Trumpet editor-in-chief Terrell Fleury has said that Russia and its president, Vladimir Putin, will come to dominate the Russia-China axis, even though, you know, Russia's population and economy are much smaller than China's. And that's because of Bible prophecies. Um, Prophecies that Mr. Fleury has said show that Putin will be in charge of an end-time Asian power block. So, you know, the Trumpet has been expecting events to play out in a way that will reduce Xi's power relative to Putin's power and reduce China's power relative to Russia's. And so right now, with with China's economy taking a serious hit and with social unrest becoming more and more common because of these insane lockdowns, and then uh, there are also weather disasters on top of all that, with all that happening, you can see how these trends could eventually rebalance the power in the Russia-China axis in the way that we've been expecting. Yeah, that that is a, an important uh, overarching point to to keep our eyes on because again, uh, China just appears so much uh, so much stronger than Russia in many ways. What we see happening in Russia, there's a lot of focus on maybe some of the more underlying uh, problems that Russia has that uh, make it harder to uh, sustain its power in the long run. Uh, but we, we, uh, you look at those prophecies, and Gerald Fleury has uh, drawn attention to that in a powerful way, just how much prominence Russia has within that uh, Russia-China axis. 
Uh, he has an, uh, a booklet, Russia and China in Prophecy, uh, that he talks about this. He also has an article called, Will China's Coronavirus Make Vladimir Putin King of the East? Looking at uh, the whole coronavirus issue as something that could uh, readjust that balance of power between those two countries. We'll link to both of those resources in the show notes for the program today, and we'll keep our eyes on that uh, that Kings of the East dynamic. Thank you for that, Mr. Jacques. China is hardly the only nation having economic trouble right now. We'll look at the United States, where runaway inflation is dragging the nation into prolonged recession. Federal Reserve addressed that this week, and it could actually make things even worse. For this, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the majority of Americans now say runaway inflation is causing their households significant financial stress. So Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell has vowed to do whatever it takes to fix this problem. And this week that involved uh, raising the Fed interest rate three quarters of a percent. He, the, he and the uh, the Federal Reserve bumped the uh, bumped that rate up to between three percent and three point two five percent. Now that's the that's the rate banks charge each other to borrow money. So if the bank ca- can't borrow money below three percent, uh, you definitely can't borrow money below three percent. You they, they can have some sort of margin. So make it much more expensive to borrow money. The idea is is if that they can make it so expensive to borrow money that they can shrink the money supply, uh, the inflation will come down. And so we'll we'll wait and see whether that happens or not. Uh, economics are complicated, but the one thing they do know that this is going to happen, whether this move ends up fixing inflation or not, it is going to make America's biggest borrower owe a lot more. America's biggest borrowers, the ones that owes $31 trillion, mm-hmm. the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Those rates that's going to go up the Treasury bonds. Last year, the U.S. government um, paid $524 billion on interest payments. This year, it's set to pay $740 billion on interest payments. So the amount the government owes in interest has jumped about 30% just in one year. Uh, and that was before the latest rate hike. I mean, you could easily see next year the government spending well above $800 billion on interest, which is a significant point we've uh, highlighted here at the Trumpet for years. And the, uh, the financial historian Niall Ferguson has said that that's often the point when nations fall apart is when the cost of uh, servicing their debt exceeds the cost of defending their borders. Uh, we spend about $800 billion on the military. And so if we spend more than $800 billion on our debt next year, uh, th- that's a really important metric to show like when nations collapse. Uh, which is something that's prophesied to happen to the United States. We'll put uh, an article we have on the website right now uh, in the show notes titled Fed Rate Hike to Add Trillions of Debt that will go through that math in more detail and put it into prophetic context. All right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Joshua Taylor, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of John Lubbock. Happiness is a thing to be practiced like the violin. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world.
You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 103.1.